Hello and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. This is volume 6, issue 287. We are talking about Blade Runner. That's 1997 Blade Runner. We'll come to that. You can play along with the show, the entire schedule beyond this uh, issue, up to and including issue 300, can be found on the Cane Rinse website. But for those looking to the near future, the next five issues will cover uh, the Room trilogy, then Soma, Bayonetta 2, Grim Fandango, and The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. You can head to canerinse.com for articles, features, reviews, and links to our forum, Facebook page, and YouTube channel, and also the rest of uh, the aforementioned schedule. If you enjoy what we do, there are a number of ways in which you can support us. Uh, Firstly, we have a Patreon. Do not worry, there's no content hidden behind paywalls or anything along those lines. If you don't wish or aren't able to contribute, everything that we produce will still be free and available to all of you. However, if you do believe that the many hours of podcasts we produce for your listening pleasure are worth something financial in return, you can now donate $1 or more if you wish per month, which will help us to keep on doing what we do. As we recently announced, if we can hit our target of $3,000 per month by mid-November, we will be doubling the number of Cane and Rinse podcasts we make next year from 50 to 100. So head to www.patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse and make it happen. If you prefer to get something tangible in return for your cash, check out our shop where you can support the podcast by purchasing Cane and Rinse t-shirts and bags. I have a bag sitting next to me right now. Each purchase nets us a couple of quid. You can find that at shop.spreadshirt.co.uk forward slash Cane and Rinse. Please also check out our video games music podcast, Sound of Play. Joining me, James Carter, in issue 287 are Carl, definitely not a replicant moon. Hey, everybody. Darren. Mm. Garget. Uh, yeah, hello. And Sean, replicant or not, he's already been retired. O'Brien. <laughs> hello, hello. Hello, one and all. Uh, yes, I've already mentioned it, and if uh, if you missed it, probably from that intro, you've uh, you've realised we're talking Blade Runner. Uh, not the film, though I'll, I'll say now and, and again in the future, we're going to have to talk about the film to talk about the game, so maybe take a two-hour break and watch the film if you haven't, because it's probably worth it. There is also a predecessor to this game, although not connected in any way, shape or form, and actually, strictly speaking, not connected to the film in any way, shape or form, aside from being a game based on the soundtrack. And it's called Blade Runner. It was made in 1985. I haven't played it. I don't like to think of myself as a shallow person, but looking at the screenshot and hearing this is based on the sound, like based on the soundtrack, yeah, okay, look at the screenshot. Doesn't seem like a game based on a soundtrack. That doesn't even seem like a Blade Runner game. What is this? So apologies if that's dismissive, but I, I didn't have the opportunity, as Carl, you've just said, to, to play this and didn't really inspire me to. I'm sorry, that's uh, horrible. But uh, there it is. It's also not connected to this game, so it's just kind of a passing note that, yes, we know it exists. Uh, no, we're not covering that today. However, for this game, the developer is very familiar to me. Uh, Westwood Studios. Eye of the Beholder. I haven't played any of those. The Legend of Kirandia or Kyrandia? I'm assuming Kirandia. That makes... Yeah, that sounds all right. I uh, haven't played uh, any of those either, but Command & Conquer Red Alert, I played loads of... Uh, so the Westwood Studios logo has a fond place in my heart, I have mm. to say. They were founded in 1985. They merged with Virgin Games, notably in the case of Blade Runner, in 1992. They were bought by EA in 1998, and 
not to throw shade at EA, the way of a lot of their purchased studios, they were closed down by EA in 2003. Sad, I remember that news. Obviously, as with many other studios in EA, when a studio closes, they, they tend to get shifted or renamed yeah, or people yeah. get moved elsewhere. It's not necessarily that everyone got laid off and Westwood went completely away, but the name went and the game we'll come to later, unfortunately. The source code for this game, the assets for this game also went when Westwood moved, so possibly even before this point. Are they the first studio that, to start this narrative about, or not narrative, I mean, it's pretty uh, evident that this is a real thing, but um, <laughs> that that uh, started this whole, like, EA shuts down all the studios that they acquire? Because I know, like, since then, it's been a whole bunch. To a certain extent, Microsoft have this reputation, I think. It's sure, reasonable yeah, to bit. say. Sony, Sony, too, yeah. Sony, not quite so much, but yeah. as a Wipeout fan, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm willing to throw Sony on that pile as well. I think a lot of it stems from the fact that there was a lot more documentation and record of developers actual fully backed developers rather than small uh, bedroom developers that you saw a lot of in the Amiga mm, uh, yeah. were tracked and when they were purchased by a major publisher ended up getting shuttered um, EA aren't really the first but EA are one of the first to get real stick for it because uh, not not only were Westwood incredibly popular but so were Bullfrog um, and they both went re- relatively close yeah. to one another and, and that really did hurt a lot of people because Bullfrog were responsible for the likes of Syndicate and Theme Hospital etc. I think that that's the other thing when you're talking about for some reason it seems to be, well, not for some reason I know why before I've even said it it seems to be yeah tactical strategy your staple PC mouse and keyboard based games it tends to be developers of those that tend to get bought up I guess the difficulty is that some of these purchases are going to be because EA or whoever wants the rights to a property or the back catalogue. Absolutely. It's asset management. It's pure business, isn't it? Or in some cases, one studio produces a competitor to a game that they're producing. So it's not necessarily that they buy the studio and then just decide to not follow through on that promise. The promise made may not actually be what we think it is, I guess. During that, I mentioned that uh, Westwood Studios merged with Virgin Games in 1992. Uh, When they were bought by EA, it was actually the American arm of Virgin Games that was bought. The publisher of this game was Virgin Interactive. They of many, uh, many games at at that era, too many to even mention, but a lot of kind of ports of different sort of uh, licensed games and that kind of thing. They certainly had their name on. Too many to mention through SNES era, um, some some games I remember quite fondly then, but not a name that you hear at all in games nowadays. I don't know how much of that's to do with EA buying a part of them and kind of then essentially breaking up the name. It's difficult to know with Virgin because the name ends up on things that are no longer part of the Virgin business and therefore it's weird, as you all know in the UK if you take trains. Director of the game, another name worth noting, uh, Lewis Castle of Westwood, founding member of Westwood, then obviously of EA, but then moved, uh, I think via a couple of other moves, but ended up at Zynga and now at Amazon Game Studios, producing games with them. Um, obviously, for Amazon Game Studios, a lot of that comes down to Fire platform games, so, you know, Fire TV and uh, and when they still had them, the Fire phones, but mostly now Fire tablets, so... Amazon Game Studios, that kind of crazy thing where they made a big noise about setting up, and I don't think I've played an Amazon Game Studios game just because I don't happen to be playing them where they are. They picked up Iron Galaxy, makers of Killer Instinct on they the did, Xbox. Yeah. They started yeah. making huge moves into the entertainment. They bought Comixology. Twitch is uh, probably their biggest 
gaming-related yes. asset. It genuinely wouldn't surprise me if they picked up the Xbox brand in coming years uh, from Microsoft. I think that that's the, a direction they would definitely be interested in taking. They're making waves, and I think they're getting a lot of stuff yep. ready that they're going to start pushing uh, in the future. Yeah, yeah, and some of the names of people I've heard going there and some of them who've come away, it's notable. You can't ignore the fact that they're pulling people out of big studios and fairly well-known people, the likes of, I am fairly sure Clint Hawking moved to Amazon Game Studios at one point. He had also been at Valve at one point, and, you know, that's a weird situation for someone who makes two, who made, uh, directed two of my favourite games to end up in where he's just not making games seemingly from a public facing point of view but uh, that's kind of the situation amazon game studios is in i'd be very surprised if that didn't become more and more prevalent producer donnie blank designers david leary jim walls artists lewis castle was uh, i think on this game creative director director obviously technical director lead artist or joint lead artist with aaron powell westwood at this time was a studio that had a lot of multi-talented people uh, a lot of people with fingers in different pies, as it were. And I think it shows from having the, the director's name as, as lead artist as well. Similarly notable, uh, Frank Klepaki was, I presume, in-house composer at Westwood, because he's certainly on a lot of Westwood games, and then via EA moved to Petroglyph, and again has been on a lot of their games. Basically, if you've played anything by Westwood, there is a good chance it was Frank Klepaki that was composer on it. But also notable, uh, this being a Blade Runner game, the Vangelis themes. I think three or four of them between the two different soundtracks that are out there. Uh, maybe slightly more than that, because there might be some crossover or not. Vangelis did the uh, soundtrack for Blade Runner, or the score for Blade Runner, I should say. And some of those made their way over onto the game just by virtue of it being a franchise game and therefore wanting to grab hold of some of what is i think one of the most well-known soundtracks for a film um i think it makes sense to appropriate that to to give the feel and, and we'll get on to how well that works and how well frank packy managed to kind of build around that later on this is a pc only game and when i say pc i don't mean steam i mean PC because Steam is just a shop on a PC that some games are on but not all. Same as GOG has some games but not all. This one is a PC release and it's a PC release if you do not have discs, CDs believe it or not, that you can put into your into your computer. That used to happen back in 1997, the 31st of October 1997. This was a 4CDs, 4CD-ROM game so this is pre-DVDs even. It is, however, 15 years after the film sharing this, the same name, which came out in June 1982. But nonetheless, it came out 15 years after the film. It's still a game that's 20 years old. Almost, you know, we're, we're uh, one month or so away from getting towards that 20-year uh, uh, anniversary. As I kind of mentioned, it's real tough to play this now. If you don't have a physical copy, which aren't that easy to come by, and even if you do have it, it may not run because the way games went wasn't the way that this game was pushing in terms of technological advancements. It doesn't use 3D acceleration. That's a problem. I mean, it's not quite a DOS prompt booted game problem uh, the way you have sometimes, but it is a problem when it comes to games on PC now are built around your graphics card handling a lot of the grunt work of, of what's on the screen. And this game doesn't do that. So in the words of Lewis Castle himself, this game will not look that much better or run that much better if you put it on a modern day PC as is. 
actually getting it to install properly is difficult on everything since Windows 7, I believe. That presupposes that you have a physical copy, which, as I said, aren't easy to come by. Again, you can go to eBay and, and do all that thing, but in terms of getting money to Westwood as they were, EA as they are now, or the right holders, uh, the Blade Runner partnership, you can't do it. You'd have to buy secondhand. There's not going to be any new copies out there, and finding them is difficult and expensive, frankly, which means emulation is the next place you might want to go for that but it's still a difficult game to do that for and that's if you accept that that's a reasonable and appropriate thing to do in the case where you cannot pay money to play the game it's not abandonware because there is still a clear rights holder that owns the rights to this game and it's their choice not to do anything with it but there is that we could generously call grey area that's not really grey but we pretend it is because there's not much option um, when it comes to some older games some retro games that you want to go back and play and there isn't a way to do it on modern systems or an easy way to do it full stop it is difficult Lewis Castle himself says that the rights is not an issue as I mentioned when you get a studio that's bought and it's particularly where it's a licensed game and you're 20 years down the line it can be really tough to try and re-license the Blade Runner name in this case to be able to resell that on a different platform or on the same platform that's not the case here the Blade Runner partnership own the rights to this game the, the rights defaulted back to them EA have no claim over this but because of the 3D acceleration issue this is a voxel based game it's not suited to current PCs a re-release is not necessarily going to work because you'd have to go and tinker with the game to get it to run properly and then the next option would be a remaster or remake but the original assets and source code as i mentioned got lost when westwood moved from las vegas to la as part of their moving into to ea which makes it a real mess and it's such a shame that we're talking about this game a game that i hope we're going to kind of give good shrift to as it were and and demonstrate why why we think it's a, a worthy game of appearing on Kane and rinse and talking about and interesting to talk about but we can't actually point people towards a legal method of playing the damn game carl i i, I guess as as an owner of uh, a physical copy it's probably worth deferring to you in terms of where we stand on this yeah um i was fortunate enough to to actually own a physical copy of the game and it's something that i've always kept in my immediate collection so that it never gets lost in the box that goes mm. in the attic and never comes out or somehow disappears on a clear. It's a game I actually picked up at launch on October 31st, uh, 1997. So whilst most people were looking forward to Halloween, I was looking forward to playing the latest Westwood Studios game. Mm -hmm. I was a fan. Uh, it's quite funny because, James, you mentioned that you, you hadn't played Eye of the Beholder and The Legend of Carandia. Yeah, they yeah. were two games I loved on the Amiga. Mm. I was a fan of Eye of the Beholder. It was one of the first things that got me into that Dungeons role-playing kind of uh, game. But Legend of Carandia was very much my bag as a kid. I loved mm. point-and-click adventures. Uh, Legend of Carandia was just a, a great fantasy game. I remember some of the puzzles now, like rock, uh, putting a rock in the sock and hitting the robot <laughs> that drove me mad at the time uh, trying to figure it out but yeah so i was 13 i was not long into having seen blade runner for the first time my father was a, a, a huge fan of it um one that one afternoon i sat down and watched blade runner and then we saw in a magazine that it was getting a release um on the on the pc i think it was uh, pc zone was most likely the one i read it in which no longer exists and 
getting really excited when I saw the name Westwood attached to it. And I, I was like, we have to get this game. And mm. my dad, who also played through the likes of Legend of Karandia with me, was really excited for it. So he went out after work, went and picked it up from the shop from Game in Middlesbrough. And uh, I've kept it close by ever since, 20 years. Um, and it, and <laughs> I'd like to think it's in fairly good condition. It's definitely in working condition because I proved it for this recording. Presumably this is smack dab in the era of big box PC games. Oh, yes. Where you got giant box that you could fit like an A4 pad in, but very small CD case down the bottom. Well, box. this CD case was relatively large because it's four discs. Yeah, it was like a <laughs> no, uh, that's true. Like Final yeah. Fantasy or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was a, a, a dual uh, case with two two sides on, yeah, the, on each yeah, for, the yeah. four, for the four discs. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm thinking back to uh, Grand Theft Auto style and um, Championship Manager style boxes, but of course they yeah, came on Diablo single too. single discs. Or, or before that, it would have been multiple floppies, of course, but I think the idea of the big box <laughs> yeah. was just whatever you needed to give people, it would fit in there, including manuals, etc. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose at that point, it's probably worthwhile Darren, Sean and myself talking about our histories as uh, as well. As, as not owners of the game, at least currently. But Sean, you're about to contradict <laughs> contradict me. Well, I didn't buy it as my dad bought it at the time, way back in the day, because uh, we were both big uh, fans of Blade Runner. I, I wasn't aware of, of Westwood or anything. This is kind of I was just kind of randomly playing games. I wasn't really plugged into the industry or anything at this point. But I, I was a huge fan of the movie, so my dad saw it on the shelf and picked it up, and so we... Played through it, I think, together a few times, and then I, nice. I still got it laying around somewhere here for this recording. I did have to go through the emulation because I don't have a uh, CD player, actually, for my computer right now, for some reason. That's, it still sounds nuts to me that that's the case. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But, but it is, and, and why yeah. shouldn't it be? You know, you just don't get software on discs anymore. No, no, it's, it's... In my case, yeah, emulation, I did look at picking a copy up. But it would still require using uh, patched executable files uh, anyway. And I do have a disk drive in my PC because when I built it, I just couldn't quite bring myself to not (laughs) put one in. I put it in under the auspices of maybe I'll have to rip a CD to iTunes or to MP3 because I don't use iTunes anymore, but whatever. I don't do that anymore. It's just literally a dead drive. Uh, It doesn't do anything. I emulate it as well. Um, Apologies. I would go down the route of, you know, the the double fine route of if you want to throw some money, buy a T-shirt. But there's no T-shirts to buy either. It's literally nothing. And so it makes me feel icky saying that I emulated the game. And it shouldn't, because if there's no legal way to buy the game, it's what other choice do I have? And and not even just from the point of view of doing this for Kane and Rince, we have to obviously play the games. But from the point of view of if I wanted to play this game, how would I? It's crazy. Darren, how about yourself? Mm, yeah, a bit of a weird one for me mm. uh, with this game. I played it over the shoulder of my my mate, my best man, uh, Will. I played a lot of games with him yeah, you know, since yeah. I met him. I, I've had a brief interest in the point-and-click series. I played Broken Sword maybe the year before. Yeah, 96, yeah, and then absolutely. And uh, watching this, I'd never seen anything like this before. Uh, watching over, mm. you know, because it, it, was, it was his PC, therefore he played. I just watched it. I just thought it was just the most fascinating thing I've ever seen. I hadn't seen the film before this. My film history is very weak, mainly dictated by my mum. Uh, so like anything that was kind of vaguely aggressive, we never saw because obviously we're kids and she was a good mum. So I never sure, saw yeah. killing of you know um, fake humans. But yeah, but, um, <laughs> you know, I saw this game and we and we we finished it. And ever since we finished it, there's a very interesting scene at the end of the game that's just honestly it stuck with me for 20 odd years an exploding pet honestly i was like that actually happened and then like 15 years later i googled it i was like yeah that really did happen 
Yeah. And then uh, that was my impetus to want to play it again because I wanted to see if it had the same impact as it did back then because that was just one of the most pivotal things I've ever seen in a game at that time. It's mm. just like, <gasps> yeah. okay, well, that's that gone. And so, yeah, I'll put my name down for this and here we are. Um, second playthrough. Well, okay, first playthrough, second time experiencing it. Sure, yeah, second time you've seen it through, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I'd seen the film maybe for the first time, maybe only five years ago now, and mm. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I probably don't get into deep uh, as deep as most people do with that film. I just thought it was a you know a really good looking film with an excellent good story. Good sci-fi yeah. film, yeah. And yes, I'll really want to play this again. And here I am. We've covered our histories uh, very quickly on reviews. Uh, Metacritic. There are a few user reviews, but no critical reviews. Obviously, Metacritic arrived well after this game would have. Game Rankings does scrape, I think, 10 or so reviews together to an average of 76.78%, which I don't want to pull the actually between you know 75% was actually a really good score back then, and nowadays <laughs> it's you know awful, but that's changed. You know, 6 out of 10 on GameSpot, actually that review is pretty positive. Six out of ten on GameSpot, I'm betting, doesn't sound as positive now, and that's not a slight on GameSpot. That's just where we're at. But I think it's also telling that one of the other reviews that popped up when I was searching through was on Adventure Classic Gaming. It's a very enthusiastic review, four out of five, clearly written by someone who has a lot of love for the game, but also for uh, the, the film. On that note, it's worth saying that the spoiler warning I'm giving now, as mentioned previously, is not just for this game. This game ties in uh, in a way in ways we will come to discuss with the film pretty significantly, uh, and not just in terms of the story, but in terms of the themes and in terms of the way that the game is structured and the tone of it. We're going to be talking about the film as well. There's just no getting around that. You can't talk about one, not the other, because it's it's a case of having to contrast a little bit. We'll try not to lean on it too much, I guess, because we don't want to exclude anyone who hasn't seen the film. But am I right in saying we would all recommend people watch the film? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an absolute no-brainer for me. Yeah. It really is. And not just because there's a sequel to it coming out, but because it's in my top 10 films of all time. It's not even... <laughs> it's in my top one. <laughs> it's, not, it's not even a question. And, and even outside of this game, Mornings. I think it is, it's inspired so many yeah, video games in general sure. and other movies and other, pretty much all media. Like Blade Runner is such a staple in terms of, of fiction. Yeah. And in terms of even even if you weren't to narrow it down to sci-fi, I think that, right, that yeah. holds true. But but especially if you're talking sci-fi, I think it's worthwhile seeing the film, obviously because they're you know in the same universe. But also just to appreciate just how well both of them nailed this world, and you know how believable mm-hmm. both of these worlds are in film and in game, and quite how Westwood managed to kind of you know replicate huh, the feeling and the, the vibe there's also a carry across of characters as well from the movie mm, that definitely are, make yeah. more of an impact when you play them in the game or yeah. when you see them in the game characters uh, and locations and yeah all sorts Absolutely of stuff locations. yeah yeah uh, some characters you see, some that are mentioned, some that are you know some events that are mentioned in passing that that pertain um but actually also we've said this is going to be a tough game to play that means that chances are a lot of people listening to this are not going to have played the game Mm. watching the film is a pretty good primer for some of the stuff we're going to be talking about in terms of replicants in terms of where the world's at in terms of companies and people that are involved that's going to give you some kind of uh, tangible familiarity with what we're talking about even if you're not able to play the game 
there uh, on YouTube, I was uh, doing some refreshers on how the game can be different. And there are plenty of playthroughs that are in the three to five hour mark. So you could watch a run through on YouTube. I hesitate to suggest that because for everything I get from watching a Let's Play, I don't think it necessarily translates the feeling of playing the game in a way that would be a good substitute necessarily. But and what you said, another thing that's strange about this is that this is a point-and-click game that gives the user some element of choice, some element of changing the game up. So whilst you could watch a playthrough of something like Broken Sword, we could watch that and play that and have the exact same results line up. And that's not the case with Blade Runner. And whilst uh, the playthroughs on YouTube are pretty good, there are actually some really good ones that that don't skip any of the cutscenes, don't skip any of the dialogue and, and uh, are great to watch. I actually watched uh, quite a chunk of one as a refresher just prior mm-hmm. to recording in that case, doesn't give a fair representation of what it's like to to play the game yourself because the choices could be so different. And with uh, so many little changes here and there, it really does change up. I mean, we'll cover the fact that there's only really three story arcs that can be played out in the game, but there's little tweaks on each of those, but we don't know which one you're going to go down as you play. Uh, of course. Until you're near the end of the game, and that that's completely lost. Even if you're trying for one, you might not get it because there's a lot of stuff needs to line up. You need to get your ducks in a row in ways that you may not have great control over, and that's not criticism. That's just you know the way the game's built. So one point I was reading the Gamesport review, and one thing kind of stood out, which was which was they were paraphrasing uh, Westwood when they were talking about what the kind of intent was with this game. Um, and, and in the Gamesport review it says, Westwood were going to revolutionise the adventure game with Blade Runner. Um, now before we get into talking about whether or not we think they did that, uh, we're going to start talking about gameplay, because I think that's kind of where it makes sense to attack that particular uh, aim, if you like, of Westwood's from. Um, I wanted to read out uh, the first part of uh, a community, uh, quite a long and in-depth community uh, piece of community feedback we had from Whippledip on the forums. Uh, again, caninrince.com forward slash forums. You can go there and post uh, your thoughts on any of our upcoming games and several people have uh, here for this. So I think it's, this is a good one to tuck into to kind of set the scene for what we're going to be talking about. Whippledip says, People quite rightly regard the Lucas uh, LucasArts adventures as the greatest of the adventure game genre, but I maintain that this was the real pinnacle. I have an original CD copy of this somewhere that my brother got from a friend a long time ago and never returned. I'd never seen the film at that time, even though I was aware of what it was. But the first time I loaded up and started to play, I was stunned at how good it actually looked. And you know what? It still holds up. It certainly helps that they had one of the best-looking films of all time to use as a source material, and Westwood wisely didn't try to change anything up. The images of flying through the city in the spinner with those giant TV screens and the looming spectre of the Tyrell Corporation pyramid are just as effective on your 4x3 screen as when watching the Blu-ray today. While the Voxel, I think they are anyway, uh, yes, they are, uh, character models didn't age as well, The actual art, design and production, even on a low resolution, make it wonderful to look at still. In terms of actual gameplay, it's one of the few games where not only choice, but the simple act of time passing can change the outcome of a game. NPCs follow their own schedule, meaning that interactions happen somewhat by chance. While some people may find the inability to control those variables frustrating, I think it only enhances the gameplay experience. One of my big issues with adventure games is that replayability is pretty much non-existent, as they play out the same way every time. I also like how failure is is a valid option of progressing the story. It's possible to stuff up something by letting a character get away because of your terrible shooting 
shooting ac- accuracy, but it still affects how a future puzzle or story beat plays out. The way it incorporates the Voigtkampf and the Esper is also a nice touch, as it serves a pretty integral part of the gameplay while staying true to the film. The VK test provides another example of being allowed to fail in order to progress, and the Esper, even though it got, gets too close to the enhanced trope of CSI and Law and, or- law and Order, feels natural in this hyper-advanced world. Blade Runner also avoids the adventure game logic problem by playing out as a detective game rather than an inventory puzzle game, so it relies on typically finding inconsistencies and dialogue choice rather than arcane and bizarre inventory combinations. I thought that quite nicely led us into talking about the gameplay. From my perspective, I'm not sure in its mechanics, in what you are doing moment to moment, I'm not sure it does necessarily revolutionize the adventure game from kind of mo- certainly when, I, when the game started up nice intro cutscene, and um, we'll talk about the aesthetic side of it in a bit but first thing i had to do was scan my mouse around the screen and see where it turned green so that i knew that i could interact with it that's classic pixel hunt on a point and click adventure so what i'm doing there sure when you get in well it still feels a bit like inventory management it's just you're managing clues rather than anything else but you get into Voigtkamp minigame and the shooting stuff and and the data management side. But in terms of actually what you're doing on any given screen, a lot of it is kind of classic point-and-click adventure. There are elements of it that are very traditional point-and-click. Where mm. this stood out in terms of being a point-and-click was, at least for me, uh, having played a lot, it, it played to the sci-fi uh, element really strongly sure. in a way I'd never experienced before. Usually point and clicks were either uh, real world or fantasy, uh, usually quite strongly one or the other. And we had obviously seen one other very notable science fiction point and click game uh, in Snatcher, which we've mm-hmm. covered in the past in episode yep. 142, we have. Uh, which was very much a take on Blade Runner. But this did have that thing, you you know, you're looking in amongst the backgrounds, looking for the things to click, but it did have the interaction of being able to shoot, of sure. genuine decision-making of do you retire the person or do you let them go? Do you sympathise? Do you communicate? Do you perform yeah. your duties? And all these uh, elements opened the game up for a point and click that I hadn't personally experienced on such a scale prior to this and then i look at it and i think we broken sword was the year before that was a a, a very uh, well received point and click game um and then we had this a year later and it was very strong and then we didn't really get any point and click games for a long time many people mention uh, grim fandango which we actually have you know coming up really soon uh we're actually covering that one in issue 291 of this volume but that involved walking around the scene with your keyboard and 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 there was like direct interaction with the character rather than you know the pointing and clicking so i think very strongly that whether or not this is the case of it redefined the point and click game it could be attributed to this title based on the fact that we didn't actually have many releases that were in that genre after this and and maybe ones that weren't so well received and whilst we have received uh, the likes of uh, Thimbleweed Park very recently we did go quite a long period of time over a decade without any truly notable point and clicks other than the Broken Sword series Um, even the, the later Monkey Island games utilized the uh the the keyboard navigation as did later monkey island uh, as did later broken sword games from uh four onwards Mm -hmm. i can definitely see why people would think that it did reinvent or uh is the pinnacle of point and click games but i think a lot of that just 
purely comes to the time between this and another one. Yeah, I think in terms of pixel hunting, um, for the most part, the items were fairly visible to me because they're voxels like, you know, NPCs in the world. You could see they kind of popped out from the yeah. backgrounds. But I yeah, really definitely. had problems with finding where the joins were between the scenes, especially in the shooting range. Like, I got to, like, the second yeah. screen. It's like, please proceed. And I was like, I just don't know where the next one is. Like, I don't know where the next blue arrow is to Sometimes, go. yeah, it's real specific and or you're almost off the screen. Yeah. Trying to click on it is weird. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, I kind yeah. of wish I had... Obviously, this game is 20 years old, so you have to think about, you know, that in terms of, you know, how games have progressed. And But, um, yeah, playing it again recently, it was kind of like, this is mad. I had to reload an old save just to get back out of the, the, um, the shooting range yeah. because it locked me in there and I couldn't find a way out. You know, I, I did a YouTube <laughs> playthrough video and I was like, oh, well, there it is. Obviously, it's over in that far corner where I couldn't even begin to imagine... You wouldn't even know to... Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, for the most part, I do think, you know, even games after this, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Discworld Noir. That was also a point-and-click game on the PC. And yeah. that had kind of more severe, crazy combinations and pixel hunting in this game. And so I do think this game pushed things forward a little bit uh, in terms of, you know, the, the dialogue, the general moment-to-moment of detecting and, you know, solving puzzles. It was a it was a step forward when you compare it to stuff like I did play a bit of Legend Shoot Larry, but not enough to call, call myself a fan. I was just there for the good times, you know. But um, <laughs> but you know, this game genuinely looking back at it, it did kind of make things seem a bit more accessible for the time. Accessibility is definitely a factor in this. I mean, we've already mentioned the GameSpot review, and the one thing they're critical of is the fact that there's a lack of game, which yeah. is quite ironic given that we're in. A, a period of time now where we have not a game games that are actually quite well received. But yeah. I mean, game game spot do have some gems, don't they? I mean, they they reviewed Alien <laughs> Resurrection and claimed that the scariest thing about it was using two sticks to move and look around in a first person. So, hey, go figure. <laughs> you know, this this we're talking about this uh, pixel hunting or voxel hunting, as is the case with this. Uh, sure, and, yeah. and how this. For me, it is a point-and-click game. That That's exactly what it is. That's your method of interaction with the world, but it plays much more as an interaction than an inventory management game. So even if I compare it to the likes of The Legend of Karandia, which was another Westwood game and was very obtuse with some of the puzzles in it, uh, as was the likes of Discworld, Discworld 2, Discworld Noir, uh, even Broken Sword the year before, we, we when we mentioned it on the podcast, we obviously mentioned the infamous goat puzzle, among others, uh, that were incredibly frustrating in, in that point-and-click logic, the, the ones that we've come to, exp- uh, to, to really know, and there's not really any of that in Blade Runner. Like, you can get through from the start of this game to the end of this game simply by clicking where the arrow is, if you can find it, Darren. As long as you progress, you will see the end of this game. Yeah. It will just play out differently. So it it plays much more with the point-and-click mechanics, but very much more like an adventure game. Whether it revolutionises the adventure game, that's something GameSpot put in their, in their review. That apparently was how Westwood felt at the time. Whether that's true or not, I, that's comp- entirely uh, subjective. There's no objectiveness, Absolutely. real objective way of measuring that. But So adding shooting into the mix, that wasn't, you know, combat of that kind wasn't necessarily terribly common in something like Broken Sword. We talked about when the one moment Broken Sword stepped outside of its remit of very laid back point and click. You point at something, you click on it, that's it. That's the way you do things. That's a big bugbear for for that original release of the game, the goat puzzle, the infamous goat puzzle. Shooting, Snatcher had shooting 
it was a weird three by three grid thing, <laughs> yeah, but it yeah, had yeah. shooting. So mm-hmm. that's not necessarily uh, revolutionary in in that respect. But the fact that, as you mentioned, Carl, stuff a game like Broken Sword, which for me is going to be a large touchstone because it came out around the same time, is a game I played or saw played in in the same way. Uh, Darren talked about uh, back then and have played since, and obviously we talked about that on issue two hundred and forty three. Go back check that out, please do. I think it's a great episode. You're absolutely right, Carl. When you play through that, you play through it the next time. There is one solution, and if you do, and you get it to progress uh, for whatever puzzle it might be, and you can dive around different places and pick things up in a different order somewhat. But for the most part, you have to tick the boxes as you go along to get to the end of the game. And if you don't, you just don't see the end of the game. The time dependent responses uh, and and not having fail states for very many things in this game. There certainly are times where you're going to be attacked and the game is going to you know stop but there are me- many cases where you make a decision and that changes what happens in the game but both decisions or uh failing at something or not doing something quite quick enough in terms of dodging a pot of soup that's being tossed at you that's not going to end the game it's going to take that into account and move forward and give you a slightly different response Stuff like Voigtkamp and incorporating Esper and uh, KIA or Kia, uh, KIA, I think, the, your data management console, and then Esper being the the mainframe in, in the police headquarters that you're using to manage all of that data. So you don't have inventory management, and actually the degree to which you need to go into your inventory, if you know where you're going and what you're doing, is quite minimal, but having to go and process your data at the police headquarters Stuff like that, I think, really does change up the way a point-and-click works versus what is perceived as the kind of standard of the time, which is tends to be very heavy on inventory management and combining items and using things in ways that you wouldn't necessarily think. You know, that notion of having to get inside the developer's mind and try and work out what they were thinking when they were late one Friday afternoon writing this puzzle, but they wanted to go home, you know? But also having difficulty levels and having optional ways of interacting with the conversation system or different tiers of ways, that's not something I'd seen in a point-and-click game of, of this era at all. I mean, sure, Walking Dead, Telltale uh, games do allow more flexibility in terms of how you interact with the game. We've seen certainly um, story-based games put in difficulty settings that just allowed you to see the story and not have to worry so much about the gameplay. For a 20-year-old game in a genre that, for many people, is kind of stuck and stayed, you know, tried and tested, if you like, there is stuff going on there that's kind of really different, I think. I'd certainly not seen anything like it before. You know, being able to preset your conversation system so that McCoy, your protagonist, the person you're playing, always answers in a polite way or just a a sort of neutral normal i think is the is the actual term given or uh, a a rude response or erratic where it's just random one of the picks or just manual where you just get a little box with a set of things you can ask about or inquire about that means that you can kind of run the gamut or you can just explore everything classic dialogue tree mm. i'm going to click on everything until i hear nothing but mm. the same things over and over again Difficulty changes, that seemed really weird to me, and I wondered if it was going to be like based on the amount of time you had to do things. But actually, it's the amount of ammo you have and the amount of HP you and the uh, the other characters in the game have. 
mean, it literally is the same difficulty it's level like you would get in a shooter or yeah, yeah. exactly mm, an action yeah. game <laughs> and that seems bizarre to say that that's how the difficulty changes in a point and click game but it does in this I really appreciate the the flexibility this game offers in terms of you know like I said earlier accessibility to the user and I imagine that people who are playing this Blade Runner game uh, it doesn't require a hefty PC especially for the time because it's all running on pre-renders and voxels so people playing this maybe aren't the most hardcore of gamers and the fact that, and the fans of the film who want to experience another story in this world so having these options where they can mm. breeze through the story without too much thinking you know too much playing games takes a lot of energy believe it or not and um, uh, having having a baby and looking after it every day full time is just just it's just you know it's tired me out big time and not to moan about being a dad but like some days i just don't want to play a game but playing blade runner uh, on easy mode with you know the polite way of talking it's just a nice way just yeah. to just sit back and just listen to something else for an hour or two each day and just go right this is i'm gonna play okay half an hour so now i just go right let's do this for a half an hour yeah. and i could see why but when i was a kid i could see why my friend's parents were playing point and click games because they're the games that you play when you can't be bothered to play a game you know and um having these options to make it easier only you know benefits the person playing at the end of the day and if they want to have unlimited yeah. bullets then brilliant you know um yeah i'm i'm a hundred maybe three years ago i'd go what but now i'm all on board of just like yeah man let's just chill out <laughs> and just play let's just experience a wicked story in blade runner again for some reason when i i, I kind of read a couple of comments about accessibility i was like accessibility really is there much in the way of you know you still have to know how to manage you know menus and stuff like that and but no actually the accessibility is here isn't it because if you're on easy yeah absolutely you can still get pounced on by a rat and knocked into the radiated ah. waters beneath but you don't have to worry about cost of items you're getting money and literally you just buy everything you need it doesn't matter nothing costs everything's free essentially you have unlimited unlimited ammo which means you don't have to worry if you decide you want to kill everybody you come across you can do yeah. that you don't have to pick and choose the people that you you know it's not quite so much of a uh, an intense guessing game or or De detective uh, game uh, in terms of working out who are the replicants and making those decisions of whether or not you you want to, to take them out. You can just go nuts if you want. And knowing that you are in situations sometimes where if you weren't quite on the ball with getting the reticle onto your onto the person approaching you at the time, the character approaching you, and you know making sure you shoot uh, and hit them every single time, you'd be in trouble on hard. It starts to take a lot less swings of that uh, cleaver from Zubin and a lot more bullets from your your gun to to take them down, um, to take him down. So you know that brings attention into it that just isn't there in easy. And that, as you say, Darren, that's absolutely fine because a lot of this game, the tension's the emotional side, mm -hmm. the tension's the the way it's making you feel and the things it's making you think about and the themes being brought up. And that's part of why I, you know, tend to defend your, you know, your quote unquote not a game or quote unquote walking simulator games. Um, because I think a lot of the intensity there is in the emotional stuff. And sure, that doesn't get some people, it does get me, and that's where I tend to come out on it. A game doesn't need to challenge you in a terribly difficult way or you know, ask a lot of you in order to actually still ask a lot of your investment and your mindshare, if you like, you know. Yeah, it don't, it feels like that uh, the shooting parts of this game are are just there because it's a video game and that's kind of what you needed to have at this point. Like I honestly feel like or I wonder if if this game was made today, um if they'd have any kind of shooting element. I mean, I guess maybe a little bit because there's 
a couple scenes, of course, in the film where there's some shooting, but it really does feel like like you're here for the story. And I kind of wish that yeah. that mm. there was just even less shooting than there is in the game, honestly, because the shooting's the worst part of the game to me. I think if they were to redo it, they would probably remove the elements of shooting rats, yeah. Um, yeah, which that, that's, is tacked on, but. Yeah. The yeah. actual, yeah. Uh, in the moment, retiring of a, a replicant or a human, you know, is a big element in yeah, the swing of this that's game. True. But, you know, on, on the topic of accessibility, we haven't covered a lot of point-and-click games on Kane and Rince. We have covered Monkey Island and uh, Snatcher. Walking and Broken Sword. Sword, yeah. And walk, walk. We've done loads. Um, <laughs> no, so, but one thing that you would regularly get in feedback is never got past XYZ. You know, sure. couldn't progress, yeah. couldn't figure out the puzzle. I think we got a couple of bits specifically like that regarding Broken Sword. Whereas with Blade Runner, that's not really the case. I mean, there are puzzles in there, but the there's only a small handful. None of them are yeah. overly difficult. No, no, not at all. It, those that play it will generally see the end because uh, it's whether or not they want to more than they just simply couldn't get past a puzzle or not. And that's one thing that I really do appreciate about Blade Runner because it takes all the tropes that we enjoy from point and clicks and puts them in a game where you are not stunted by a ridiculously unorthodox puzzle that, that makes very little sense. Yeah. The hardest puzzle in this game is honestly just figuring out where to go next. There are yeah. a couple moments yeah. where I, I just was kind of clueless on which like, which location to, to go mm. to, but otherwise, yeah, that's the hardest part. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's absolutely fair. And, and to a certain extent, you can just go everywhere and do everything that's not an efficient way to play it and there's there's a big reason why your first playthrough can be anywhere you know up to probably a dozen hours or so you could easily get 12 hours into this um i I think how long to beat has it around nine hours it was one of the reviews i read anyway that suggested yeah first time if you're struggling to know where to go it might take you 12 hours your second time it's going to take you a quarter of that and yeah it kind of is going to take you three hours once you know where you're going and what you're doing particularly if you're playing through to try and get a different outcome because you're probably going to know what you need to try and do differently. So we've talked, uh, I guess it's probably worth saying, um, I hope everyone knows what we mean by point and click adventure, but in many ways, these are the games that your telltale adventure games sprang out of. There is, you know, individual character control in kind of more developed adventure games, if you like, or certainly developed in the direction of a Walking Dead telltale game. But in this case... The idea was that the vast majority, if not everything, that you had to do to interact with a game was a mouse. And probably, in many cases, you only needed one button on that mouse. You literally have reticle, a mouse pointer on the screen, and you are pointing at things and choosing to put them into an inventory. And if you want your character to move and have direct control, you're pointing and clicking somewhere on the screen to get them to move there. It sounds really simple, but as we've said, this game puts a lot of extra stuff on on top of that. Um, And we've mentioned several prior point-and-click games or contemporary point-and-click games and some that came afterwards. LucasArts and Sierra are the two kind of staples of the point-and-click genre. They are development houses that in both cases no longer exist as they were. LucasArts obviously is now part of Disney and Double Fine have done a pretty good job, I would say, at convincing Disney to free up some of those games to now be able to be re-released. Again, Grim Fandango is going to be coming up soon. We covered Secret of Monkey Island in issue 192. 
Telltale also have a Monkey Island game that was released much more recently, So and, and there were re-releases of Secret Monkey Island, obviously, back on XPLA. We also covered Broken Sword, as mentioned in issue 243, and I put a question mark on Snatcher, because just thinking about it straight away, the fact that it was first person kind of... Th- not through me, but made me wonder if we would call that point and click. But then something like Interpol on XBLA is essentially first person because the scene you're presented with doesn't have a character in it. And I, that's clearly point and click. So yeah, Snatcher, absolutely issue 142. The point and click games that came after this one, ones that I've played that when I started playing this, I immediately thought, wow, okay, I know where the CSI game series came from is this. Mm-hmm. Because this is exactly the same thing. You know, you're collecting evidence, taking it back to the lab to process. There's that investigation side of things. I don't remember that much of the kind of old item combination and weird puzzle aspect. Mostly it did follow a fairly logical, reasoned uh, progression of an investigation. The original was just called CSI, but then Dark Motives is one I played. And there were kind of a slew after that leading into kind of the 360 era. And I think the last ones were on... DS and and mobile. But that's certainly a touchstone for some people who might not have played games back in the in the nineties as to something more recent. In terms of tone, just because you open up with guy in a trench coat and a voiceover talking in kind of a typical noir voiceover, um, I got some Max Payne feelings from that. But I I literally put influences slash legacy Max Payne kinda not really, because what it shares in common is just noir stuff rather than Blade Runner stuff or anything to do with this game it's just noir stuff but it does speak to the way that this game leans into kind of very typical noir tropes and and that kind of thing this takes all of the aesthetic cues we're about to talk about all of the aesthetic choices we're about to talk about are pretty much dictated by the film that's where this all comes from there's a reason that Blade Runner is kind of a prototypical sci-fi noir that's what you think of when you think whether it be you know cyberpunk i guess or whether it be sci-fi dystopia just more generally blade runner is going to be that and this game tries in its to its very best efforts to evoke all of that exactly so the film is where this gets pretty much all of its influences from aside from the point and click aspect it's worth noting that the sequel to blade runner please be good please be good please be good uh, blade runner 2049 uh, comes out on the 6th of october 2017 in the uk uh, i'm not sure about worldwide releases that can get a bit fluffy around a one or two week period and so obviously as they always do leon and tony have made sure that we get to talk about this game at an appropriate time when there is something blade runner for you to enjoy that's brand new, uh, in this case a film rather than a game. In that respect, so aesthetic. I've said it's all just Blade Runner, but I do want to tuck into a bit more of what that is for people who haven't seen the the film, but also for people who want to know our thoughts on how this game goes about doing that and whether we think it's successful. Whippledip, who we heard from earlier, as I say, left a long but I think pretty fantastic post on our forums, and this is the rest of that. Whippledip says, in relation to the the graphics and the aesthetic, something that's kind of forgotten about adventure games is the mise-en-scene of the areas you explore. I don't think that is forgotten about adventure games, but then it's because we spent a long time talking about the way that the scene's composed in our Broken Sword show, for example, so it's something that is on my mind. Maybe it is forgotten for some people. Just wanted to say that I'm I'm not 100% sure that that's the case for me and maybe for other people. Grim Fandango used this well, but Blade Runner used it better. True to both games, 
noir film backgrounds, there are lots of strong contrasting light sources and extreme verticality, and the traditional cinematography is really impressive. Just about any screenshot you find of this game is very visually interesting to look at. There are times when it forsakes cinematic quality for gameplay purposes, but those situations are definitely in the minority. What I mean by verticality is the way the camera frames the buildings and all the streetscape scenes. Looking up from a low angle with the buildings dominating the background, highlighting the urban density of the city and the sheer oppressive nature of a giant block of steel or concrete towering over you. One of Blade Runner's themes is the nature of humanity and how it defines you. And what better way to highlight the lonely nature of McCoy's life, not just in his relationships, but also the smaller details like his job and his living situation, than by placing him in a huge, claustrophobic and monolithic city as the backdrop. The music in the game, much like the visuals, doesn't stray far from the original source material, even going so far to completely include parts of Vangelis' score. As for the story, my memories of it are relatively hazy. I don't recall any horrid voice acting, featuring Jeff Garland, who, um, from Curb Your Enthusiasm notably, um, which is really cool that, um, that he's in this. Uh, weird but cool um, or anything outrageous regarding its story beats but I'll need to play it again to make some kind of judgement there I imagine that there are people whose main criticism is that it plays too close to the movie which I think is a valid complaint as some of the characters inclusions feel a little too much like fan service without really advancing the plot in a meaningful way or including ideas from the film that are so clear and obvious it almost asks the player to forget major portions of the movie Personally, this didn't affect my enjoyment because if you're going to crib from the source material, Blade Runner is a pretty good, uh, pretty bloody good source material to choose. If there's one game that needs a remaster or even a working version on GOG, this is it. Much like the film, it's an underappreciated gem of its genre that needs to be exposed to a broader audience. I feel like most people who end up playing it today will regard it with the reverence that it deserves. I'm so glad someone highlighted underappreciated gem with some question marks there. Uh, much like uh, the opening that the mise-en-scene is kind of forgotten about uh, adventure games, I, I don't think that's the case, and I really don't think this is an underappreciated gem. Maybe that's just because of the company I keep, but I feel like mm. many people think Blade Runner is pretty damn hot stuff. Well, I think uh, it's hard to believe that there's a science fiction film being made since that hasn't used Blade Runner as an inspiration. Yeah. There's a reason uh, Ridley Scott with Alien and Blade Runner is kind of thought of as in many ways progenitor of a, mm. a couple of different very strong science fiction sources that have been cribbed from time and time again. It's also why he gets a free pass for bad films. <laughs> <laughs> and and we, should, we should also call out Philip K. Dick's source material too. That's it, oh, obviously yeah, a huge... Absolutely. It's it's the it's the literal source material for yeah. for Blade Runner. What's it called? How to do do androids do androids Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it's it's the the aesthetic of Blade Runner is absolutely iconic. To anyone who's seen it, it's so immediately recognizable. I'm quite fortunate, which is a strange thing to say about the area that I live in, because it does have a bit of a reputation. But from my bedroom window, I actually see the skyline of chimneys that inspired the movie. Yes, of course. Yeah, because Ridley Scott's from your part of the world. From here. Um, and he used the ICI Wilton base mm -hmm. uh, as the reference point for the opening skyline with the burning chimneys. Now, that yeah. that is so true. Um as I'm sure Tony from the team can attest to from when he's been to my house. You can you can see it from my house. You see the chimney stacks all burning. It is 
undoubtedly Blade Runner. Um, and it's kind of wonderful. It's an eyesore to anyone who's not a fan of the film, but I always think it's kind of cool. Um, and I've also rocked a Blade Runner wallpaper on my computer for years. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly a fan of the aesthetic uh, of Blade Runner. For me, it's the absolute... It, it's the pinnacle of set design uh, in, in all of movies for me and a massive inspiration. So uh, th- that being the case, uh, aesthetics, I tend to like diving into uh, music first because that's kind of what sets the scene. You know, even when you've got a black screen, you've still got music playing generally of some kind. And uh, as mentioned, this throws some Vangelis themes at you uh, right off the bat. The question I've put in here is, how, how do we think these are built upon by Frank Klopaki? Because obviously you can grab a few of the, the tracks from the score and use them wholesale pretty much. You just digitize them and throw them on a CD. It's easy enough to, to put them on there. You don't have to reinterpret them or anything like that. But there are obviously a lot of tracks included in the game soundtrack that had to extend Vangelis's own music and mm, had yeah. to be in keeping, but also something different that was going to stand, you know, on its yeah. own. I think it's a it's a pretty good testament to me mm. that I don't even know which tracks aren't from Vangelis. Like, I mean, I assume like some of the stuff that's in the nightclubs, like uh, early cues or 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 I can't remember the name of it, Frank sort of thing or something. But I assume those are, are probably Frank Opaki, But I don't even know. Like, so I, I think whatever whatever tunes he. He uh, added to the to the soundtrack. I think they compare pretty well to Vangelis. I mean, there's there's no mistaking the opening th- song, which is clearly yeah. from the soundtrack. But yeah, I don't I, I don't even know which ones are added. So I think he did a pretty good job, honestly. I would say that the uh, addition of the Vangelis sound is so important to this game. Right from the get go, you hear the you know the the chimes infamous with the, with Blade Runner, and you hear them, and I, I still get chills up my arms every time I watch mm. the film or play the game, and I hear that bit of music. Um, and one of the things that Frank Klopaki's had to do is build upon the duration of these files because when they're built for a movie, it's built for that scene and that scene length. But when you're playing the game, you could be stood around. So you have to be able to loop them and make them so that it actually works within a scene. And I think those elements of, of taking Vangelis's work and making it work in the game are sublime. Yeah. There are some moments where the music is a bit off it doesn't even necessarily feel like it belongs in science fiction. Uh, there's a bit of music when you're in the lift the last time you're in your apartment before the end of the game where the music, for some reason, just sounds straight out of like a 1980s John Hughes movie, which absolutely <laughs> drives me up the wall. Um, but, f- you know, the, the editing and the working around of what Vangelis has done, I absolutely appreciate so much uh, in this game. The original tunes... Uh, go between uh, subtle, which is good. Don't get me wrong, I, don't, I have no problems with subtle. If I don't notice, then there's not a problem there, is there? Too uh, straight up annoying, but for the most part, it's actually pretty good work. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. Darren, thoughts on music? Did you, obviously, having much more recently encountered the film, mm. did you feel that the film accurately reflected the game, I guess, is, is well, your way around? From the start, you know, that iconic tune. Uh, to to the end of the game, mm. I never really noticed any wild differences between the theme, you know, and the, and the general tone of the overall music. So yeah. I've got no complaints really from my you know quite amateur experience of the series. Um, but it all kind of just slotted in quite nicely. I think I agree with Sean that maybe some of the nightclubby stuff sticks out a little bit as not as high quality as the, as the rest. But again, it kind of it fit the vibe of that particular scene because it was a bit of a 
ropey dive place anyway. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, overall, no, no complaints from the uh, both ambient and prominent use of music in the game. Then extending into the other aspect that they, I think, had to get right in this in this game is the look and feel of 2019 LA. It's worth saying, um, we would get to it in the story, but it's worth saying now, this is set concurrently with the film, so it's set same city, hence you get a lot of the same uh, cityscapes, the opening shot, as Carl mentioned, over the chimneys, and flaring chimneys, I should say, and the giant uh, billboard TV screens with the... It's a Coca-Cola advert in the film, right? They don't have Coca-Cola in this, because obviously not licensed, etc., but the same kind of woman's Mm. face on there popping a pill into her mouth. In this case, a white one in the film, I think it is slightly red. There are specific locations and and landmarks because it's set in the same place. It's running concurrently, like literally events will happen as you play through the game that make it clear that this is running day by day exactly with the, the film, which is a choice that we will get to in the story and talk about, I'm sure. The look and the feel of it, though, there's a um, Ragnarok's interview with uh, Lewis Castle on YouTube, and through the first kind of third of that video, uh, Ragnarok's goes through and talks about, you know, compares the some of the scenes, and they've literally recreated some stuff, not just the landmark, but the angle that it's from. It's literally like recreating the scene, um, like shot-for-shot remake style mm. almost. That, to me, got across... Absolutely. I knew from moment one where I was that this was the same place. And it it did feel like it. There weren't many environments I was in where I didn't feel like, yeah, this, this is Blade Runner. This makes sense. Looking down the list of locations, some of them that weren't in the film still felt like like Runciter's live animals. I was like, yeah, we saw like shops and marketplaces that were selling animals in the film that felt like this, but that's not a character from the film, and in it, yet it felt right, you know. I'm, I'm not entirely sure I get all of the different roles we have. Animoid role, DNA role, nightclub role, the, a few too many roles there, I think. And D, DNA role, there, there's a big, you know, neon flashing light of, here's where all the Tyrell Corp guys right, work. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to get any of these guys, here, here's where you go. Um, but they all felt, like whether there was a character or a place there from the film, they a lot of them felt like they would have been, and and I did have that moment of oh, was that in the film? And having to go through going through the the FAQ I mentioned on Game Facts actually really helped sort out which characters were and weren't from the film, which places were and weren't from the film, and that again, like the music, if it's subtle enough or I'm struggling to tell the difference in some spots, that's kind mm. of a testament to how well this was done, I think. It's absolutely crucial, in my opinion, that they used the locations from the film, because it's called Blade Runner, and it's been 15 years since the film's come out, so a lot of people have had a lot of time to rewatch it, theorise over what the story actually really is, and to basically pick the film apart to its, you know it's last microsecond of the of the film and just go right okay well there's a game now and obviously those people were just dying for more Blade Runner so if you were to set it in a completely different area I just don't think this game A would have been elevated from a you know pitch to actual final product you know because I imagine part of the pitch was look how good we can make the um 
you know the scenes from Blade Runner in a video game. That that must have been so that must have been yeah. you know, a lot of the reason why this game was commissioned in the first place because they just they just completely yeah. nailed the scenes like for like. Yeah. Um, the only one I don't really like is the, or agree with is the balcony bit where Harrison Ford's sitting on this really nice balcony and then old McCoy's sitting on something that's just made out of just rickety <laughs> real rickety yeah. fire escape looking thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not a, it's not a great comparison, but you know overall. They completely smash it out of the park, and uh, I, the, the golden eye analogy for me comes in because you know the, the film. If you like the film, then the game you play, and you go, "Oh, these are the locations." There's a reason why no one remember, remembers Goldeneye Rogue Agent because it doesn't. It's just you know, it's just a, it's just a label mm-hmm. over an own its own product. If you're going to call it Blade Runner. It has to be Blade Runner, and that's what they did. With the movie, uh, as good as the characters like Deckard, Rachel, Roy, etc., are really memorable. The biggest character in that whole movie is the city. So Los Angeles in 2019 is the main element of that movie. That's what you see. That's what you live in. Uh, the the, the never-ending nights, the acid rain, the, the, the neon lighting. Um, and you have to get that right, else you're going to look like a cheap, nasty knockoff. So yeah. it utilizes some of the same places. So you see the Tyrell Corp building, you see the Yukon building, you, the elements of the Bradbury building, which is, is iconic in its own right. So yeah. to be able to see these in the game uh, are fantastic. And I remember the game opens up and you start at the pet store and the pet store looks good. It looks like something that would exist in Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, the neon light around the top looks maybe a little bit off to something that was in, but the, the, sure. the set design looks okay, and then you finish that pattern, you get in the spinner, and I remember playing, I was like, ooh, ooh, this looks accurate. And then you choose your map on the spinner, and you know you land at the police station. I was like, okay, now, you know, now you've got me. And then you, you start going to some scenes that are just... Like they're there, they're, it's like you're in the movie. Um, when you when you enter the, LAP, uh, the LPD station, and it's this big, huge monolith of a building and you see your tiny figure and there's the deep blue light um, because the whole thing with Blade Runner is it plays with tonal qualities massively. So you've got your golds, you've got your reds, you've got your greens. Um, and I loved it when you entered the LPD building. I was like, oh, I feel like I'm playing Blade Runner. But the bit where it absolutely won my heart is the second when you go to the noodle bar. Mm-hmm. And that noodle <laughs> bar is such a key moment mm-hmm. in that movie. That lighting, the smoke, the spinners in the background, the chatter, the sound, the guy mixing the noodles. And this game has that perfectly down um and the second that it got that i knew that this was a game i was going to love forever because it nailed the hardest thing to do and that is to match a movie in a moment when that movie is so iconic and memorable for that specific reason i really have to like darren you were saying with the balcony i I really have to kind of pick at nits in order to find something to quibble about here the sewers seemed a little too intricate and a little too populated and just seemed a little bit weird and rats in the sewers popping up i immediately thought demolition man and that's not a good thing you want to evoke (laughs) but the fact that i'm picking over the sewers being slightly too like, like there's platforms everywhere and there's literal people living where you're walking past them and you pop out the sewer and you're straight into the Tyrell Corp building. It's just a bit like, oh, that not that a bit convenient that this guy's sitting right underneath where I need to go? And especially when you get to the end of the game, you're kind of running in through the sewers out to one bit to do something back into the sewers out. And it's just a little bit convenient that 
you just have to happen to have ready mm. access to everywhere you need to go. I'm just picking absolute nits at that. I can't complain about that at all, really. Yeah. Because you still have the smoke and you still have that kind of oppressive atmosphere, even when you get into the sewers and off the streets where you kind of feel that. The areas where it struggles are a bit where it goes off script. So when it's actually direct referencing elements from the movie or just tweaking them, changing them so so they look a little bit different they're great, you know, they work, but when it has to go off and create something original, so we know that in the movie we have the likes of Roy living in the underworld, so he's hiding whilst trying to progress, so we know that there's an underworld existing, Mm. well, this game tries to create that underworld for you to experience, so it feels new and original from what you see in the movie, and maybe it feels a little bit off because it's something that we're not familiar with. Now, that's not a knock because those environments are more than passable. Maybe the elements with the rats aren't great. Um, We picked it up on the shooting. We picked it up for feeling odd in the game. It probably shouldn't be there. It's kind of strange. As you said, you're nitpicking over something when it's done the hardest part already in matching the movie, and sure, elements of the journey uh, a shortcutted, you know, we we talk that you go from one place to another almost instantly, and that element is lost. But over, overall, it does a great job, and I can kind of forgive it for trying its best to create these original things that live up to the movie. And sure. if you get halfway there, you've not done too bad, I guess. So for for that reason, I'm happy. But one thing that I do want to pick up on terms of nailing the aesthetic mm. and the mood from the movie is when you're running the Voight Kampf machine, um, you see the eye flickering and the machine looks great. Yeah. But yeah. you've got the you've got the cigarette smoke behind, which is such an iconic moment at the start of the movie with the, you see a turtle and you know and and he's interviewing Lee on and um the cigarette smoke's going on and it's so moody it's so perfect noir um that when you're on it yeah i can't help but smile that that smoke yeah. haze is just behind the machine i thought that mm-hmm. was such a nice touch yeah and i thought the espers as well with when you want to zoom into a slightly different part of the picture it zooms all the way back out and zooms in yeah and yeah. yeah it does rotate around on what appears to be yeah. a, 3D, a 2d image <laughs> in a 3d way the the vid file you get from Runciter, fine. I didn't notice too much like zooming in the way that you wouldn't be able to see something. After that, pretty much every one you zoom out, and it's like it literally pans around the face of someone mm. to see something that's behind the person. It, right. It's nuts. Is that in the film? Like, I know obviously the, the Esper part. Zoom the film, out but and like- then z- reframe and zoom back in. That is, or at least it is in my memory. And if yeah. if they got it that right, that I think it is when it's not, then. Sure, but so those those yeah. elements are in the film, and yeah. my take is that obviously it's the future, but it's that cameras are actually not just capturing on a two D plane, but a three sure. D okay. atmosphere. Okay. So it, it picks these things up. So yeah. it does seem kind of strange, but it 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 has that perfect. You know, you capture it, you drag your little square over mm-hmm. the photo to yeah. to, yeah, yeah. to uh, and it's and, got and all the sound zoom effects in, as well. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and it's that sound, it's that click, that sort of effect. Just absolutely. Again, it's 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 these iconic sounds that come from Blade Runner. The you know the the wind chimes when you're going past. You know the little click on the Esper machine. It's just absolute perfect fan service that gives me goosebumps every time. Just thinking about so the, it. So um, the, the problem with the, the 3D aspect is you can do 3D from a single camera as long as you've got a couple of lenses, like our eyes essentially, but that would very much limit the field or the degree to which you could push around 3D. It'd be very slight. In order to get proper 3D, you'd need like cameras around different points of the room, and at that point, you should be able to change the perspective completely. So why do you have a photo instead of like a 3D render that you can move around and manipulate? Um, so it's just weird like that. But as Carl says, in terms of representing the film, I was just 
I was just zooming, resuming, resuming, just to see yeah. it do it because it was brilliant. It was just like, yeah, get that stuff right. And if the sewers aren't quite what I expected, fine, because they got so much else absolutely right that you your brain does fill in the gaps there and and paste over the cracks, if you like. Speaking of noir aspects, um, the voiceover when it kicked in at the start, I know it's, again, taking from the film, it did feel a little this is a noir trope and this is a guy who doesn't really have the gravelly voice of a noir voiceover doing a noir. It felt a little off, but I think that was only because the voiceover happened before I'd actually got into the game. And once I got into the game, it was like, yeah, this is absolutely fine. That makes perfect sense. It did kind of make me think, oh, is the voice acting not going to be up to this? You know, because it just felt slightly off. And for some, the problem with what I've dubbed noir aspects is they are such a well-established trope now that like when I talk about Max Payne it feels like overdone and hammy to a certain extent but that's because it's playing to the trope that's how it quote-unquote should be in my eyes at least and so the fact that yeah it's pouring rain of course it is because that's how it is in the film the fact that it's always night of course it is that's how it is in the film that's because Blade Runner established not a lot of noir tropes because noir had been around for decades before that, but in a sci-fi setting, bringing that in and using that sort of stuff, it definitely is a touchstone, if not a progenitor for that stuff. We've kind of covered uh, a bit about the art. Uh, I've put it down as pixel art. Obviously, it's voxel art. The colours you have to choose from when you're trying to ape something like Blade Runner are really specific. And I think, Carl, you mentioned the neon Mm. uh, sign for Runster feels slightly off because it's slightly too clean and bright neon. And it should kind of be... I think there's just something slightly off about the palette for it uh, that that makes it a bit weird. But in terms of the way the animations work, they're not acted quite in terms of what's being said. They're not perfect. (laughs) But actually, the animations, I think, look really good for the for the most part they they're really expressive you get a lot from them in that way that pixel art or you know a, a, a retro styled game now can do an awful lot with very little movement in the same way that you know we talk about mario being however many pixels he wasn't in, in mario brothers but you still get a lot of expressivity from that this has obviously got a lot more going on than than super mario brothers but it does an awful lot with what would be now considered not that much in terms of graphical fidelity, if you like. This game does something interesting because it has three very specific art types. It has the CGI for the cutscenes and stuff, which is the standard 90s computer-based CGI, which always looks a little bit off. Yeah, little blocky, little... But, you know, it was kind of cool to see at the time. It was, you know, it was the kind of thing that we used to see on the kids' TV shows when we got in from school and thought it looked amazing. Everyone's eyes are completely open as wide as possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I don't yeah. mind. Looking back, I realize it of its time and it, sure. it did a, a very good job with it then. It has the pre-rendered backdrops uh, and environment settings which can interact with the animation, such as when you land at the LPD for the first time and the spinner comes down with the smoke. And I, I think the pre-rendered backgrounds are gorgeous. I think the neon is the one thing that's off, but it's unequivocally Blade Runner Neon, so at the same time, it's not bad. It's a little bit too clean, I think. James was absolutely right when he said. And then you've got the voxel art, which is where the characters or the items in the environment are drawn. 
it's strange because we've seen stuff like Thimbleweed Park that where pixels are actually very kind of pretty. We've had games like Home. We've had quite a lot of pixel-based games in this decade when it was something that you know was was seen as done old hat and not needed anymore. Uh, unfortunately, against the pre-rendered backdrops, they do stand out a little bit too much at times. I remember there's a time when you go to the strip club and one of the uh, dancers is on the floor and they're sort of sliding around yeah. and it doesn't quite look yeah. right because voxels are weighted volume pixels ultimately so they, they t- attach a move next to the ones alongside and as a result you don't quite get that feel it's if it was something that was to be remade absolutely would not have that kind of artwork uh, anyone who remembers outland the game from around the same amount of time that whole game had that style the environments as well that always looked a little bit off at the same time there's little subtleties to the way that the character might tilt his head or move or look a little bit frantic that are really appreciated I mean uh, there's several bits where you're in run sitters talking to the owner and the, he really has that sort of frantic panicked animation about him that, that is kind of charming it, it looks off to the background but in its own isolated self it, I quite like I'm always battling because I'm realised that even in 1997 these looked out of place because the pre-rendered backdrops were so beautiful. And the thing is, the backdrops are actually still quite pretty now. With everything that we've seen since, it's a little bit hard. It, they're not as pretty as, say, something like Broken Sword, which was the year earlier. So it, it really blends three different art styles together. Uh, but, yes, you know, yes, it, it yeah. has the mood for nailing them, which is great. All right. Well, I think it's high time we got on to the story. Time will run away from us if we're not uh, not careful. So uh, just before we do, uh, another piece of community feedback on the forums, from this time from Bloody Initiate, who says, I don't remember much about this game. I believe I played it before seeing the movie and not long after it came out when I was 12 or 13 perhaps. I remember the game's storyline parallels the movies. There's a lot of detective work, a powerful physical replicant to be overcome and a scholarly warrior poet type replicant behind him. It showed us what could be done in terms of graphics, presentation, game length and complexity. We only had a family PC but this game looked and sounded incredible. We had no idea what games were capable of in my family and with each new game we learned more. I didn't know how many endings there were, but I knew there were more than one. I knew my decisions, the time I took to make them, and when I took certain actions could change the game. The voice work was memorable, I've never forgotten Sadiq or Clovis, and I remember how they affected the story with their dramatic personalities. I don't remember a lot of the supporting characters, except that they were effective at creating the world. I remember feeling immersed in the world. This is something the movie does so well that it's important the game did it too. You can almost smell it. In some ways, the game looks better than the movie because it can deal in the rich contrasts that damage the visual comprehension of a film. I remember not getting to fire my gun much, but it felt significant when I did. Finding new bullets felt good, even though I was sad I didn't get to use them on more things. That all combines to create a strong memory of a forceful game. Even if the details are blurry, we were probably playing Quake, Quake 2, maybe some Tomb Raider at the time. These were fun enough games, but they didn't look or feel like this one. They gave us fun experiences in what felt like the same medium, lots of movement and action with graphics that looked like spilled paint. Blade Runner, a 1997 game based on a 1982 movie, showed us something new. I don't think back to it often, but I don't remember anything like it before, and that's the important part. Uh, thank you very much for the uh, the feedback. I wanted to pick up there on the uh, game storyline paralleling the movies. Um, as I mentioned, it runs concurrently in the same place. You're coming across a lot of the same characters and uh, a couple of points, specifically when you go to see Tyrell Corp to see Elden Tyrell, he, he mentions that another Blade Runner had been around that morning right. and yeah. that's 
you know, that, that is literally Deckard going in there. Setting in the same place with the same characters is a great shorthand, and I'm glad they didn't just try to retell the film's story. I, I really am. I think that would have been a mistake. It didn't, wouldn't have added anything new. That seems to set yourself up for too much of a disappointment. To me, there are the, the comment there about it being a, a detective story with a powerful physical replicant to overcome and the scholarly warrior poet replicant behind him, that kind of speaks to the fact that there's almost too many similarities in the structure of this story you are playing through. You are a Blade Runner. You are following up on a seemingly inconsequential act. Not that it's not a, you know, the... the animal uh, murders or the animal killings at the beginning is is not inconsequential in, in and of itself but it seems to be isolated and then you unpeel more and more and then you end up chasing this family of replicants and there's tro- there, there's kind of stereotype uh, members of that fam- family that play the same roles as they do in the film it's almost like this is a retelling um, which sits kind of at odds with it happening at the same time because that then starts to look like too much coincidence instead of this is just a reinterpretation of the same story. The fact that you're setting it in parallel is like, well, how come we didn't know anything about this other replicant family in the film? And the answer is because it didn't exist then. That, and that's weird. Yeah, they're retconning. And, and, at this, and my only defense for this would be that it would stand to reason that all these replicants are finding out about their lifespan kind of around the same time. So they would be all... Sure. Or, or yeah. not all of them, but a lot of them would, would be obsessed with the idea of, of finding more life. Um, Absolutely. Extending yeah. their existence. So I get that, 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 that these guys would have the same, at least, motives as Rory and Leon from the, from the film. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I I can't ignore that it's almost beat for beat in a way. Like you, you, yeah. you're even the fact that or or the the notion that Rory himself is a replicant is also straight from the film. Like it's it's just like too many yeah. uh, similarities. I think most people would say the film, especially in its initial form, kind of sh- shied away a bit from. Well, it did shy away from is Deckard a replicant, and that's right, something that yeah. came mm-hmm. up in the 15 years after, to the point where you watch Blade Runner, and if you talk about it or think about it, or or watch, you know, Final Cut, Director's Cut, right, etc. Yeah, yeah, depending on the version. That becomes a much more central theme, but it still feels quite subtle in that, as Darren, you said, if you, if you want to watch Blade Runner as a sci-fi film and story and not really think over and over and over in the way that diehard fans would, you can um, you can watch it as a film, enjoy it as, as the film it is, and not necessarily dwell on that. This game seems to dwell on, is McCoy a replicant? Way more than the film did oh, Decker. Yeah. Like, way, like, it's explicitly said, before you get through Act 1 almost, it's, it's out there as this is going to be a big fact. And it, again, that was maybe a little too much for me. I, I get why they didn't try and play it as subtle because that then makes it very difficult to play the story out in different ways. Yeah, so uh, I've, I've rabbited through my kind of, again, this is my one reservation of the story is maybe it's a little too similar to the way that the film plays out. That That's not a, a bad thing. I love the story of Blade Runner. I'll yeah, of course. Yeah. Again, but they, <laughs> yeah. they made a choice yeah. not to retell that story and then kind of did yeah. in a sort of looking over the shoulder of Blade Runner's story, if you like, to, to pick up on you know the way some people play this game. When you look at Blade Runner, you're looking at something that is a master of its craft in so many more ways. You know, I keep talking about the aesthetic, but even beyond that, the story, the subtleties in the story, a lot of the visual clues. These are things that are so difficult to do in games. I mean, games right now are still trying to mimic subtleties that can be 
shown in a an actor's face, an actor's uh, subtle movement of the hands, uh, a set decoration. Ellie Noir coming to Switch next year, by the way, folks. Yeah, so <laughs> all all these kinds of things are incredibly hard to mimic. So for yeah. a game, particularly a game in the nine in the nineties, has to be a bit more blunt about how it does stuff. Now you mentioned that it plays very heavily on the are you aren't you a replicant? Sure. Um, of of course, it's not a linear story uh, like the movie. The movie plays out the same, or at least it does. When you include the the final and director's cut, as you said, James, but mm. the game can play out in one of three ways. So you still don't really know until you get to the end, which is maybe the one saving grace. If it had the same ending, then it would be really awkward because pretty much every major encounter in that in that game has someone saying, "What about you, McCoy?" And it has you thinking, "Well, what about me? Maybe I am, maybe I aren't." Whereas that you know, for the movie, it's almost not raised as, as an issue by any character in anything other than a very subtle and a scant kind of of way. Yeah, of they I, they I, say something that if you took it in a different context, maybe they're saying something, but actually mm-hmm. maybe they're not at all. You know, this, yeah, absolutely. This is it. You know, it's it's. I keep mentioning the term subtle, but this is how much it is in the film is that you could watch that three or four times and not pick up on a line or two that are mentioned by certain characters earlier in that film before the edit and the cut, which in itself is subtle and makes you think a certain way. And the, the game, again, mimics that. I'm reluctant to spoil it, even though we've put a spoiler warning out for the movie, because I love that movie so much and I'd hate to think that I'd ruined it for someone. But the, the, there's little touches in the movie that uh, I appreciate so much that the game tries to do, but the game can't quite match the movie because either fidelity just isn't there and still isn't there in games. Um, and you just can't mimic the things that a movie does in games as as well, that, that, they are just simple facts. So games have to go about things in a different manner. I was always on the verge on this second playthrough of losing the thread. I found, you know, I've been kind of coddled by modern game design that, that this one for me kind of felt mm-hmm. a little bit too sparse in its information. If I, I, I'm struggling to get my words out here, but I found that every time I turned it back on, for the, I played it chapter by chapter or round about that. So every time I turned it back on, I was like, okay, what happened before? I'm confused. I'm a bit lost because... You know, it's just um, like I said earlier on in the podcast. Um, you know, energy is a is a is a scarce resource for mine uh, for me, and it's just like I would have maybe appreciated like a previously on like you saw in The Walking Dead. And I know this game's twenty years old and that never existed back then. But playing it today, I was kind of a bit like, oh god, um, who are these? Oh yeah, these people with their really over the top accents. Oh god, um, they're, they're I remember them. Okay, like let's just follow them. <laughs> and you go, you can go into your um menu and. You know, you can pick apart all the clues that you've got in there, but even then, I found that not the most intuitive system nowadays. It's, it's good that it's all there and you can look at it, but I kind of wished that, uh, there was more information in there rather than just clicking on it and it repeats the line of dialogue. I kind of wish there was a bit more of information of what you've done in the past, uh, so you can kind of keep the thread going as opposed to just going, "Huh, I don't know what I'm doing now. Um, maybe I'll just fumble around the previous areas and hopefully bump into what I need to find." Uh, yeah. Yeah, until you either pick up the thread or just happen to to sort of move the story forward. Yeah, yeah, you know that's kind of symptomatic of the point and click genre, though. Even probably now. Yeah, because you're not always sure that what you're doing is going to move the Hmm. story forward. So therefore, it makes it difficult to piece together the bits that actually make up the story and the bits that are you just clicking on this thing over here that's in that does nothing for like half an hour, you know, and realizing Mm -hmm. that it's not 
part and of what's going on. And as good as the passage of time uh, yeah, yeah. mechanic is in this game, you know, if you if you chase after someone too slowly, that that person will disappear and come back at a completely random event. Yeah. You know, that's a really good idea that I really appreciate. But again, it, mm. it kind of felt like a bug in 2017 where this guy didn't drop down, and I was like, oh, um, okay. The, the game doesn't explicitly tell you that if <laughs> yeah. you don't chase after these people, this guy in particular is going to do this thing. So yeah. I was like, well, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. reload my save. Maybe he'll turn up again this time. <sighs> Has he just gone yeah, a different yeah, direction? Yeah, or yeah, yeah, or yeah. is he just not just spawned the QA in? Or, ahead yeah, of mine absolutely. that I just thought it was a bug straight away. But, you know, it, uh, he did bump into me on, on the <laughs> yeah. rooftop later on, and I thought that was a really genuine right. surprise. Sure, yeah. Zubin will come after you there. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, in terms of the story and the characters around you, like... Some NPCs, they take some really long walks just to shout across a long distance to um, McCoy. <laughs> I think there's a, there's, there's yeah. a policeman. It's, it's just, it took about a minute to get over to him. He's like, with his little stick. He's like, I was like, oh, come on, man, speed it up. Do you know what I mean? And then he was like, blah, 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 blah. And then he walked away just as slow. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Um, but, you know, yep. overall, yeah. at the start of each chapter, I was looking forward to breaking down what was going on. But like I said, I kind of lost the thread each time, and maybe that's just me with story games. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's that's fair. I think nowadays there would absolutely be whether it's a loading screen here's the last thing that happened yeah. in your game, yeah. or whether it's a log somewhere that you could go investigate. With just like you'd have to make it vague because there's so much kind of flexibility mm. in what happens when. But just kind of some trail that you could follow through. I don't think even a hint system. Yeah, um, you know, yeah. we we had seen hint systems at the t- even before this point. Sure, um, you had the KIA system, which is where you would do all your detecting work um, and, and your tracking of clues and that element of stuff. And it could have been better tracked in there, but you could see that it was reluctant to go the whole um, method that we see in games like Skyrim, which explicitly says, "Well, mm. you've done this, go do that then." And it, it takes away that whole mystery element. And there's pros and cons to losing the thread because you might have done something differently. The random elements are something that I'll equally promote and attack in games uh, as things that I like, depending on my, I guess, my mood or what side of the bed I got out. Yeah. Um, so I can kind of see why people would get annoyed, um, annoyed at that. There's just so many pros and cons about that kind of stuff, but there is definitely ways to lose the thread. But it's never, as I said earlier, it's never as a result of Definitely. not being able to do a puzzle. Yeah, uh, it, it's just about remembering mm. what you've uh, got yeah. to do. I mean, that's the reason why yeah. I managed to finish the game is because it's so fluid that if you if you click in enough places enough times, it's not down to an obtuse puzzle where you have to put an octopus in a toilet like in a Discworld game. Yeah, it's literally you know talk to the right person. And or maybe you just have to run around the block a few times and that yeah. guy will turn up. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. If if you are on a screen and the person that you want to speak to is not there, just try going off screen and coming back on. They might respawn and that's not because it's a bug. It's part of the the random encounter time thing. You just need to move off screen and come back on. And that's kind of you're fudging the edges of what you should be doing is going away from that area, doing something else. And mm. then when you come back, but you can actually do it just by going to the next screen and coming back as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is something to be said for losing your way. In, in the same way people say, you know, the best way to get to know a place is just to go and get lost there because you're forced to, you know, walk around without a map, without your phone out with, you know, Google Maps on or whatever. Just walk around. You'll find your way. You have to be able to find your way back out again. By the way, kids, don't do this. This is for adults only. Do not walk around strange places and get lost anywhere if, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a kid listening to this. That's just legal 
legal point there. I have to say that. Um, but yeah, you go and you get lost. And so in a story like this, you you do struggle to see the wood for the trees. But the mm-hmm. fact that you do, you can go and explore and talk to people and click around and investigate your your KIA and go and re-update um, through the mainframe all of your data and see if there's anything more gets processed out of it. There are things you can do to kind of work out how to move the story forward and you will pick it up. And that probably means that it's more your story than a game like Broken Sword where it's just the story. As a result of this and being able to get lost, uh, lose the thread or where you're supposed to go, it does a very good job of selling you as a very small element in a very vast an active city, sure. Um, which is very, very rare in this genre. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're hunting down six replicants in uh, Los Angeles that is bigger and more vast than it is now, in theory, or you know, what was when when the game was was made, certainly. And there are a lot of environments to the game. It's you, you do go to the same places several times. Mm-hmm. But there are plenty of different backgrounds for you to explore. You do actually feel like this is a big city. You don't need to see it all, but it sells it very well. I never felt frustrated by it, I'll have to say. No. Obviously, that's, that's as, as you come in, as you say, Carl. It depends on your mood as you're sitting down to play it. But And sometimes you should feel lost as a detective as well. Let's not forget mm. that no detective should have mm. all the answers immediately. I mean, it's a ridiculous representation of being a detective if you know exactly what to do. Yeah, go to the crime scene, pick up the clue, take it to the lab, get the answer are going, you know, yeah. that, dare I say, L.A. Noir style of yeah. investigation. It's, it's a fine where, line, isn't it? It's a fine line of doing something that's so ridiculous that you might as well not be a detective yeah. to, you yeah. know, uh, restricting the user to making them feel a little bit lost so mm. that they feel more like a detective but maybe lose the thread of the game. Sure, and you run the risk of alienating people because of that. I think 1997 is yeah. just maybe an era where game designers were happier or or less aware that players were getting lost perhaps even um and players were more patient or seemed to be more patient to go through these frustrations i mean we talk about it all the time uh when we talk about retro games i mean we covered mortal kombat just prior to this um and and sean you were on this so you can attest to it that we were saying that how ridiculously difficult that game is now but we did it as kids we were just more patient and, and we also go back to particularly with story-based games the time pressure that we play these games under not just because of the podcasts and we talk about you know having to play on a deadline so that we've completed it before we we talk about it but because darren's got you know a a, a baby there to, to look after a, a life that depends on him and we've all got jobs to do and we've all got you know people in around our life to spend time with that's not to say you don't have some of those things around when you're a kid but chances are you got a lot more time on your hands and that's just not the case now and 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 a lot more other games to play yeah a lot, is another a lot more stuff to play yeah absolutely because of the fact that you are tracing you're on the heels of or or running parallel to the story of Blade Runner in in the film and because as i mentioned say the family of replicants kind of looks a lot like the shadow version of the replicant <laughs> family in the film it would be easy to see some of these characters as, you know, McCoy is just not bargain bin, but like a, a <laughs> vague outline of a Deckard and Clovis is a vague outline of a Roy Batty. Lucy's character is the outline of uh, Daryl. Ha- Why am I forgetting the name of Daryl Hannah's character? There's that aspect. She's 14 and Daryl Hannah's character is not supposed to be 14, clearly. But there's the naive, innocent side to that character and the, the wanting to see the good in people and that kind of thing. Uh, and the vulnerability as well. There is that kind of aspect to some of these characters, um, but I have to say, and, and we'll get on to one particular part of this, across the board, I thought 
the the voice acting was was pretty darn good. As I say, I got over that hump of that kind of voiceover at the beginning, felt a little bit off, and got into it. And Jeff Garland was mentioned earlier. He he plays uh, Edison uh, Guza, who steps in for uh, Chief Bryant uh, in in the in the police force. But yeah, you've got you know a, a lot of other pretty good performances from names that I don't necessarily recognise. Some of the the original cast come back. Um, Joe Turkle is Eldon Tyrrell. Or Tyrell, uh, Sean Young is Rachel, and then there are some substitutes. Javier Criada, apologies if pronunciation is not right, uh, steps in to play Gaff instead of uh, Edward James Olmos. Mm. Apparently, Harrison Ford was contacted, but never responded to see if he would appear in it. Hence, Deckard's mentioned, and but but never never speaks in the game and is not kind of there necessarily i think that's a good thing personally i think it would have been really Too awkward much, if yeah. deckard was in it you'd be thinking i just want to play as deckard i i do there'd be a question of why are we not following more of what he's doing yeah definitely but yeah generally pretty good the one thing i did want to raise and i think in my mind i don't have the right to dismiss or even necessarily categorize this but um there are a Obviously, a few characters who are very specific in terms of their ethnic origin or cultural background. Sadiq is referred to as a Rastafarian. Isabella runs Kingston Kitchen, clearly a Jamaican woman who who, who runs that. Hannibal Chu is obviously in there as a character that appears uh, in the film and is also in the game. He is the guy who makes eyes for the replicants. There are plenty of others. Uh, Muraji is, is another. He's, I think, Indian, I want to say. It's certainly Indian subcontinent. There is, I think, I certainly felt when I was listening to not just the voice performances, but the the dialogue, the way they were represented, the way they looked, the way they were referred to, there is a stereotyping going on. How do we feel about comfortability before I say how, how I feel about it? I think it's an unfortunate uh, holdover from the film also. Like, I mean, that's James Wong's voice as Chu. Like, that is the way he... he- or at least in the films I've seen him in, that's that's how he usually speaks. Yeah. So, but at the same time, I feel like they could have maybe, maybe changed it up a little bit here um, mm-hmm. with some of these new characters, especially. So yeah, I could see it, it's it's as it definitely being a a bit of a just kind of unfortunate in some of the situations, but it, it's it, at the in a way it still kind of holds up with the film, on you know for better or worse. Straight up the Jamaican side of it is mm-hmm. frustrating yeah didn't didn't like that i think for the rest i didn't have a problem i thought that the voice work in particular was pretty strong uh, there's loads of names in this cast that i recognize you know even outside you've got lisa edelstein from house you got jeff garland from kirby enthusiasm as we mentioned you got paulie perrette from ncis steven root has been in like a million things steven yeah. steven root who from office space and news radio among many other things incredibly talented actor so i mean there's talented actors not necessarily a lot of repeat video game actors yeah. which yeah. is unusual yeah, i mean this is paulie perrette's one and only video game i mean mm-hmm. let's not forget she's Probably made a very suitable living off NCIS. There's definitely talent in the in the voice work, but that Jamaican accent is really not good. Like it's annoying. Aside from maybe some of the offensiveness, I think that there are a couple performances that for me they didn't really land. Like Crazy Eddie, is that his name? The the handicapped oh, guy. Uh, the... Crazy Larry. Crazy Larry, yeah. Crazy Legs Larry, yeah. Crazy yeah. Legs Larry, that's it. Yeah. He's he just kinda seemed a little too 
him him and uh, um Gordo Frizz, they're both seem kind of like fifties villain, like like uh Frank Sinatra yeah. kind of talking kind of characters yes. and it's just kind of, You're the kind of noir. Right, yeah. But like they're only two like that in this whole universe like, to kinda yeah. have that fast talking, hey, how's it going, character you know Funnily enough, Crazy Legs Larry was the one when I heard him I thought that sounds like a bit of a stereotypical American accent. That doesn't excuse stereotyping of other cultures, especially when it comes down to the dialogue that's been given as well, where it feels not cringeworthy, but it doesn't give someone a pass if they're just aping something that's come before. I think for the most part, the way these characters are written and then performed is pretty much on a par with the way that they are in the film. That's not to say that's good, bad, or otherwise, obviously, um, but... If what they're trying to do here is reflect the way things are in the film, and in the film they use a, what is actually a noir film shorthand. There are a lot of stereotyping uh, in terms of characters in noir films. There's a lot of shorthand used um, in order to relieve a certain amount of having to fill in backstory and backgrounds and flesh out characters. You use a shorthand, you use a stereotype, you use trope, whatever you want to call it, as a shorthand for the audience so they know what that is. It's a strange sense of relatability, isn't it? Is that we relate to the offensive stereotypes because we've seen them done again and again and again, which in turn means that we don't need their background explaining. We can take them for what they are. Which and it, makes it's a strange more of, perpetual yeah, loop. Potential paper character. We we have both mentioned, we have uh, several times mentioned, those are the ones that stuck out more. I think that's possibly because Hannibal Chu comes from the film, so that's a direct representation as long as James Hong performs the character in a similar way and the writing isn't that different, it fits. I think, for me, it seemed to be a good representation of the way things are in the film, and the film is using stereotypes. And again, I would argue those stereotypes are kind of across the board. That doesn't forgive the way they are here. Before we move on from this section, I think we yeah. should probably talk about Mac Benninghoffen, um, given that he's the lead voice role you mentioned already, that is uh, how he does the narration at the intro. And it feels a little off, mainly because it's not the movie, and that's our association with the voiceover and the noir. Personally, from my standpoint, it took me a while to get used to his voice because he's not Deckard. But once you get over the fact that this is McCoy... I actually started to quite enjoy his voice work, particularly when you factor in the different ways of saying stuff with the uh, the different attitudes towards yeah. it. I actually think that it's a pretty decent voice job. I mean, it's a pretty mm-hmm. decent voice work throughout, in my opinion, but I thought Mac Benninghoffen did a pretty stellar job. That opening voiceover stuck out. I think you're right because it's not It's not just that it's not Decker, but it's not the gravelly voiced, voice, you know, yeah. 20 a day. Adam uh, Jensen. Kind of just torn apart throat that you yeah, yeah the, the the natural extension of which is Adam Jensen or Christian Bale's Batman that kind of thing you know from someone who is the protagonist in a noir film to be doing the voiceover you know that kind of real uh, weight of a voice and it wasn't that and that struck me as always oh, this just someone sat in their bathroom reading lines into a tape recorder or something, you know. But but I, as you say, Carl, I, I, I absolutely agree over time that's something that definitely I got to appreciate 
uh, Mark mm. Benninghoffen's take on the character and that role. And I got to appreciate that he wasn't trying to do Harrison Ford's Deckard because that could have gone again that been, fully yeah. wrong. If you miss the mark, you miss it hard because yeah. you know that that's the standard you're being held to. So yeah, I got to to like that. I've got to say the other thing that I thought the voice did by being a little bit softer by not being that grizzled voice mm. is that it didn't represent a character that was long in the tooth because he's not. We the other Blade Runner that's notable in the story is Crystal Steel, and she's actually pretty dismissive of him as somewhat of a rookie. Mm-hmm. That she actually comes to admire him more as the story progresses. So if he did sound long in the tooth, real grizzled, hardened Blade Runner, then it wouldn't have matched with the story that he's trying to tell. With that, that this is someone who is relatively young to the game. Which once I got used to, because that is the voice that we want to hear. Once you get used to, it, I actually quite admired the work that he did. Just because we mentioned it before, and we quickly do need to talk about endings, but before we get to that point, Maggie didn't get blown up for me, but she did get shot off camera, uh, as it were. That was a gut punch for because that's that's McCoy's one emotional tie, really, the, the pre-established emotional tie. Plus, it's a dog, so I'm going to melt, frankly. Darren, I can absolutely empathise with that being kind of a, a gut punch moment in the story. I walked into that room and I was just mm-hmm. like, no, that can't be. I didn't obviously have the shock of an explosion, which is just, yeah, un- unfathomable. I have seen that scene looking through for for kind of alternate paths and stuff. But yeah, that was just hard. The impact wasn't there this time around because I was like, oh yeah, this, so this is actually happening. It's not just, I didn't just make it up in my head. And then it just kind of popped, and I was like, like yeah, a balloon. I was yeah. like, oh, it didn't have the same. It obviously, it is a, you know a sad moment, but yeah, it kind of just like didn't have the same influence on me as it did back then. But that's probably because I'd never seen a dog exploding sure. before. Yeah. So. Wow, what? And you've seen plenty now. I've seen loads of them. I've been on the internet for that <laughs> long. So yeah, it's it's one of those things that uh, Maggie got blown up in my game, and I remember mm. being gutted. I mean, I, any time an animal gets hurt. Uh, I hate it. It's the worst thing yeah, ever. Like kill a kill a hundred humans in a game, not a problem. One animal, it absolutely. Except in Wolfenstein, they deserve to die. But <laughs> I remember in in uh, I was absolutely gutted when. Yeah, I was gutted when Maggie got blown up in this though, and then people were like, "But it's only a it, it's a ro-. in 1997." I was gutted mm-hmm. when my Tamagotchi died. That wasn't real either. <laughs> so I was gutted when my dog died in this game. Is, isn't it weird that that death was as meaningful, if not more, or as uh, impactful, if not more, than, I mean, the whole point of this game is, is it right to retire replicants, even if they're not human? And how is it any different from actually killing a human? You know, that whole question of, is is this murder? Yeah, you're doing your job, but is this murder? Are you, yeah. And and they do make a big distinction. You will be investigated and you are told you will be fired if you make a mistake and kill a human. You have the right to retire replicants. You do not have any leg to stand on if you make a mistake. The death of a dog that, again, may not, quote-unquote, even be real is something that stuck with me or hit me just as hard. In terms of outcomes, I've, I've read there are 11 different outcomes in all, but as far as I can tell, they all kind of condense down to three different endings. Yeah. Uh, you can escape with Lucy or Dectora, depending upon there's a uh, one key decision you have to make as to which one of those you'll end up uh, escaping the city with. Uh, that's a replicant sympathizer route. 
Um, you can return to the family, which is replicant sympathizer plus you're left in no uncertain terms that McCoy is a replicant in that case. Um, and you can kill the replicants, in which case Crystal is the sympathizer, but still in the last moments accuses you of being a replicant whilst she's about, uh, it's weird. Um, and in that case, McCoy is kind of supposed to be human. And on repeat playthroughs, different characters can be replicants, as mentioned. Lucy and Dectora are, are two of those, um, but there, there's a few others as well. I, I just remember it being quite novel, um, and it's something I appreciate even now, having uh, a sense of replayability through different outcomes yeah yeah in this kind of game okay another couple of pieces of community feedback bakers 12 on the forums says being a fan of both point and click adventure games and ridley scott's films i was biting at the bit to play this from the first time i saw it on the shelf in wh smith's with its big box with the art homaging the film's poster the game oozes the atmosphere of the film with its dark neon film noir sensibilities the story going in parallel with the film works well. Interestingly, the things I like about the game are what makes it stand apart from point-and-click games and the film. Gone are use X with Y mechanics. Instead, progress is made by finding clues and investigation, which fits the world so well. The only type of investigation I didn't like was using the Voigtkampf. I never quite knew what I was doing. Yeah, 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 I can kind of see that. It's a little bit of kind of working out as you go. Baker's 12 carries on. When playing the game in my teens, I loved how it built on the world from the film. It was only later in my 20s, once I read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, that I realised a lot of these elements, like um, Mercerism, came from that book. Uh, Mercerism's the religion. Uh, came from that book. Also, the idea of different characters being replicants in different playthroughs was brilliant. Unfortunately, once played several times, it became apparent that there was very little variation. I now think Blade Runner is due for a return to gaming, a telltale-style dialogue system with a until-dawn death system with a central cast as different replicants on each play would work well. Also, Alex79UK on the forums says, A telltale version of this game would be amazing. The original is a right pain in the bum to get running properly these days, and my memories of playing it years back are so hazy they're barely worth mentioning. I remember being impressed by the graphics and the general atmosphere of the game, looking for clues on the computer in the game and exploring the world, but that's about it. I know I never finished it. I'd really like to play it again properly, so some sort of re-release would be most welcome. Uh, yes, yeah, sadly that doesn't look likely, but I absolutely agree. And we had quite a few three-word reviews. Thank you very much for them. Steve Thompson-Jones, also known as Count Stex, says, uh, replicated the feel. Curtis at Luke Cage H4H says, Voight Kampf Joy. Adam, better known on Twitter as Flameboy84, says, oozing with atmosphere. Uh, Acapulco VIP, iOS replicant, please. Gareth Knights at the Gaffer says, perfectly captures atmosphere. James McCall, which is at James McCall, many happy memories. Uh, Anthony Richardson at Citadel Maximus says, photographic reality twisting. And we just heard from Bakers12 in the forum posts, uh, three word review is replicant this game. Okay, I think time for our summaries. High time for our summaries. If it pleases you, I will go first because uh, I literally played this game two days ago, so I have less of a history with it than you guys. I'm really pleased that Blade Runner isn't a simple retread of the film or, you know, uh, the strict events of the film, even if it does feel a little too similar in some spots. I could have stood the story deviating a bit from the film's structure uh, a little more. But revisiting the setting, tone, the themes, locations and characters um, was undeniably a 
pretty seductive experience uh, for me. Honestly, my biggest criticism is that I can't really or I don't feel I can implore people to try this game out um, because we're in kind of a ridiculous availability situation with it. It's kind of painful, having played this now, that it's not available on GOG or even Steam, uh, but particularly because mobile platforms have provided a place for point-and-click adventures, it would certainly take some tweaking, but I'd love to see it on there. And it just kind of feels like, and uh, Lewis Castle has said himself, it's not going to happen. And the fact that I feel kind of so aggrieved by that tells me all I need to know about how positive I am about uh, this game. I think it was pretty darn special, frankly, and I'm really glad I got the chance to play it, but I I wish it was easier to do that. Okay, Sean. It's a weird situation because, as you're saying, it's hard to it's hard to recommend a game that people can't play um, yeah. unless they have other means, uh, like buying a physical copy. But um, and it's also um, it's hard to recommend to anyone who maybe has no affiliation or no affinity for the film. Uh, if if you just have you just see Blade Runner as a PC game, you're like, oh, should, should I maybe play this uh, point and click adventure? Like, I'm not sure if um if it'll really resonate with uh, uh newcomers um it might because some of the, the artists still are pretty arresting and and the story is still interesting but i i i can't tell if if my affection for this game is um so closely married to my affection for the film but i that that being all said i do really like this game and i and if you can find a way i mean we all found a way through emulation it's it's really the only viable way right now to play this game so i, I recommend people check it out especially especially honestly if you're listening to this you you've probably seen the film and you're probably a fan of it so um if you, there's 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 ways out there to play it and i encourage people to do so excellent thank you very much uh darren yourself i'd recommend playing it especially if you're a fan of you know, noir, or more specifically, Blade Runner, the film. Um, but just go in knowing that, you know, it is a point-and-click game from the late 90s, so it does have, although not the traditional problems, you know, of item combining in weird ways, it does have its own weird quirks and um, oddities that make it a little bit hard, like I said, to follow the thread of the story. Um, but ultimately, you can kind of brute force your way through and pick up the thread again. So it's not a complete nightmare like some games. Like I know in a couple of months, a couple of weeks' time, we're going to talk about Grim Fandango. And while I'm not on that show, I know that mm-hmm. game in particular, even though it come out a year later, has some of the most ridiculous puzzles ever. So, you know, going back to this game 20 years later, after watching it and now playing it, you know, it was a, yeah, it was a pleasant ride. I, lo- I love this style. It is just, it's just so unique, even after all these years, you know, people have, been, people have tried to ape it and copy it, but no one's really got it down as well as, you know, as well as both the game and the film have. And it's kind of reignited my um, my excitement for the genre as well. And I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to pick up Fimbleweed Park when I've got absolutely zero energy and I want to play a game. Uh, yeah, so yeah, point and clicks back <laughs> in my wheelhouse and uh, I can thank Blade Runner for that. Carl, I left you for last in the hope that you didn't hate this game. It's definitely safe to say that I don't hate this game. Um, I hate the fact that it's so difficult to play these days. Uh, We all had to search out a patch from a German website that allowed us to even just install the game, then bypass something so we could see the video so that we could allow a disk swap. It's really strange. And despite that, it was worth every moment of going through that pain just to play this game again. Um, uh, as I've mentioned, I've had this game close by me for 20 years now. I, I absolutely refuse to lose this game. Um, it, it's very important to me, not just because 
it's about Blade Runner, which is my favourite movie. It's the one that inspired my love of that art style, going the way that I did with my 3D art design, going through uh, university, studying the courses I did, because I find... I found it so inspirational in the first place. It's kind of incredible that even all these years later, I can watch that film and just be sucked in by the atmosphere. So for a game to try and mimic it is an incredible undertaking because to try and take the feel of something like that and make something playable and enjoyable and worthy is quite rare. And another game that did it quite recently, to give it some credit, would be Mad Max, which we covered in issue 267. But that was an adventure game. So a a point-and-click game like this is something that I really appreciated. I still think because of its genre, it holds up now. I think it's very playable, not in the sense of actually just being able to put it in and play it. Mm -hmm. And it would work incredibly well on a a mobile phone, um, which is a perfect example. Bakers and Alex, uh, in our feedback, both mentioned like a telltale, telltale version of this game would be brilliant. Um, I would go one further and say that I think the Blade Runner franchise is worthy of an engine beyond what they're doing. I would have loved to have seen something like CG Project Red's Cyberpunk 2077 be based around the Blade Runner license. I think <laughs> that would have just been the ultimate game for me. Uh, to uh, And I... I just think it's a license that we see so many games mimic. The, the likes of Deus Ex is heavily influenced by Blade Runner. Pretty Every science fiction game we see, but we're not seeing more Blade Runners. Whether that's because it's a difficult license or not, I don't know. Even 20 years later, and we hear time and again there are no decent movie tie-ins, is the biggest fallacy in gaming, because for 20 years we've had one of the very best, and that's Blade Runner. Um it's just a shame that with the move away from uh, Westwood, so many files got lost and it's made it so difficult to play. And sadly, all those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. Uh, very good. Nicely done, sir. Nicely done. There you have it, folks. Bittersweet, but uh, but I think fairly safe to say that uh, this one's a bit of a, of a classic in many respects. Um, it remains for me, James, to thank Darren, Sean and Carl, as well as Editor Ryan and our wonderful correspondents, plus, of course, every single one of you for listening. Remember, if you've enjoyed this and other shows, please consider heading to our Patreon page and donating the minimum of $1 per month. Uh, if enough of you do this, we can make double the amount of Kane and Rinse shows in the future. So head to www.patreon.com forward slash Rinse and make it happen. Next time, in issue 288, Tony, Carl, myself, and a special guest will be trying to escape not one, but three rooms. Because it's the room, it's a trilogy. It's, it's not three It's not three rooms, there's more than three rooms, but it's three the rooms. See you next time. <laughs>